We're in the middle of a series on Revelation. And uh, today's uh, message is on the last word on witness. And uh, I know why uh, Pastor Brian handpicked uh, uh, Bob today to deliver this message is because uh, Bob lives it out. And uh, it's what he does. It's his job. Uh, if you don't know Bob, uh, you might recognize him. He's uh, usually out greeting or ushering in our lobby. Uh, he serves on our church council. And then he is the uh, director and lead person for crew up on campus. So uh, I hope you get to meet him. I hope you get to know him throughout uh, the coming days. And uh, would you please welcome him to the stage, Bob Schwan. Yeah. Thanks, Oak. Get stuff laid out here. Awesome to be with you. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to... Uh, uh, teach here at Journey, and I always count it a privilege to get to talk to the people that I love so much. Um, since it's been a while, I actually even want to let people know a little bit about my story, who am I. Uh, it was about 23 years ago that I came to MSU uh, as a freshman from a little town in eastern Montana, and I did not know God. But the problem was is that I didn't realize that I didn't know God you see, I'd grown up in the church. Uh, most of my whole life, my mom had uh, taken me to church with her. But what I realized was over those times, I, I learned a lot of the language. I learned how to answer a lot of the questions. I knew a lot about God, but I didn't actually know God. I didn't have a life-transforming relationship with my creator. So when I came to college, uh, I wasn't really thinking about pursuing things of God. I was just pursuing the things that most other college students pursue when they come to MSU, just, just living the life of a young person. But it was during that time, and it was actually right before I came to MSU, that I met a guy in my orientation class. And we kind of developed a little bit of a relationship there for that few days. But then I kind of lost track of him during our freshman year. But at the beginning of our sophomore year of college, uh, we were both moving into the same apartment complex, and I saw him riding around on a little motor scooter, and so I kind of waved to him, waved him down, and he came over, and we were just going to have a, a normal guy, superficial conversation, in my opinion. You know, I was, well, what are you doing? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. And then he was going to drive away on his motor scooter. Well, I asked him, you know, the obligatory question, so what's new in your life? And he says to me, I became a Christian, and I'm just thinking, who says that in a conversation like this? I mean, he just drops the God bomb right in the, right in the middle of this reconnecting conversation. And I didn't really know how to respond to him, but I, I know that I tried to communicate to him that in some way that uh, I was a Christian as well. But being my neighbor, it didn't take him very long to observe my life, to say, you know, if this guy thinks that he has a relationship with God, there's a disconnect somewhere. And I'm very, very thankful that this, my friend, even though he'd only been a follower of Christ for just a handful of months, he initiated with me and said, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about what the Bible has to say about having a relationship with God. And I remember thinking to myself, I do not want to sit down and have this meeting with this guy. I've heard everything that he's going to tell me before, but I just kept thinking, I, I don't want to disappoint him. I'll feel bad uh, if I tell him no. So I went ahead and I, and I met with him. We met in the sub, and to make a, a long story short, 
he sat down and very clearly and very relevantly explained to me who God was and how God wanted a relationship with me and what I needed to do to enter into that kind of relationship. And I remember thinking for the very first time, this makes sense to me. And God, if you're like that, I'm in. I want you to be the boss of my life. I want to surrender my life to you. And I look back on my life now, and I am so thankful that there was someone that was willing to step into my life in a way and tell me exactly how it was. I was so thankful that God used another person to explain to me the greatest news that's ever been announced. And so I want us to think just a little bit, just a little bit logically today. If that's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, God using someone to bring me into a relationship with him that's gonna last forever, what is the greatest thing that I could do for anyone that I come in contact with in my life? The greatest thing that I could do for them is to introduce them to Jesus that can transform their life the same way that he transformed mine. And that's saying, that's, that logic plays out for every one of us in this room. That's the best thing that we could do for any person that we come in contact with. But here's my experience. My experience tells me that most people are not involved in sharing their faith with other people. You know, we, we think about it and we want to do it. People will say, I want people to find God. But just don't ask me to say anything to them. Because it, it just makes me uncomfortable and I think it's going to make them uncomfortable. And it, it just feels so risky. I'm afraid I'm going to offend them. You know, why don't I just believe what I want to believe? I'll let them believe what they want to believe. And then God will just kind of sort it out in the end. Because that will make me feel better and it will probably even make them feel a lot better. Why would we take the time and the energy, I mean just the emotional energy that it takes to initiate those kind of conversations. Why, why would we do that? That's what I want us to talk about tonight. But I know, or this morning, last night it was tonight. This morning, it's this morning. What I, the reason that I want us to talk about this is, is because oftentimes when you, when you broach this subject with people, and you can almost feel it in the room that people's defenses start to go up. And they just think, I do not want to hear another message of people telling me about how I need to tell other people about Christ. I'm just going to walk away from here feeling guilty. Let me just tell you, I just want to try to bring your defenses down as best I can. I do not want you to leave the room and head out to your car this morning feeling guilty. In fact, I, as I prayed about this message, I just thought, God, I will personally feel like I have failed if people leave here feeling guilty about sharing their faith. But what I do want you to have when you walk out those doors and you walk to your car, I want you to have perspective. I want you to be able to see your life, your Christian life in the big picture of what God has been doing from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. I want you to have perspective because I think perspective will move us from a place where we're not feeling guilty about what we are or aren't doing in terms of sharing our faith, and it'll bring us to a place where we actually feel motivated and excited and a sense of urgency and a sense of calling. That's where I want us to land today, is in a place of perspective. And that's why I'm thankful that we've been doing these, this series out of the book of Revelation, because I think there are some things that come from the book of Revelation that do the best job in all of the Bible in terms of giving us perspective 
on why we would want to be a witness in the lives of other people. I want us to, to recap just a little bit uh, a piece of Brian's very first message that he had on the book of Revelation. If you remember, he talked about a couple of different pictures from the Bible. And he had a couple of trees up here. And he, he talked about that first picture of the Bible with God and Adam and Eve in the garden. In this perfect picture of community between God and people. There was nothing that was hindering relationship between God and people. And then he fast forwarded and he showed a very picture of the very end of the Bible. The very end of time. And we see the very same thing. There's a picture of the redeemed people of God gathered in worship of him. Perfect relationship. Man and and woman in perfect community with their creator again. And then Brian talked about how we live between those two pictures. We live as middle people in this grand drama that's been going on between those two pictures. And if you know your Bible, you know that shortly after that very first picture, things went terribly wrong. Man decided that I want to live independently of God. I want to be the captain of my own boat. And that perfect fellowship and relationship with God was broken. And so the the drama of the whole Bible from that picture to that picture is this redeeming work of God as he's bringing people back into relationship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. This drama that God has been playing out from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. But here's an incredible twist in this script that God has been writing. He's the author of this We follow him, he's writing us, but he writes us into the script. He wants us as his kids, his children, to be a part of what he's doing to redeem the world. I want to, in this series we've been talking about last words, famous last words. I want us to look at the very last words that Jesus gave to his disciples after he left this earth. And to put this in a little bit of context, this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And for several weeks, he's been with his disciples, teaching them things related to the kingdom of God and talking about the building of the kingdom of God. And now, if you, if you know your Bible and you know kind of the story, the, the disciples, up until this point, they've been a little bit flaky at times. They're kind of in and out. You know, after Jesus' uh, death, they all just kind of went back to their family businesses. And then when Jesus resurrected, he calls them back to him. So they've been a little flaky up until now. But now they see that their master and their Lord, they've seen he is risen from the dead. And that gets your attention, does it not? They are in. They are in for this kingdom business. Jesus, whatever it is that you're going to ask me to do, I am in. And so they're imagining that them and Jesus, that we're going to go together and we're going to build this kingdom of God here on earth. And so this scene that, we're gonna, that I'm going to read from is a, is a scene where I kind of imagine that Jesus is kind of huddling up the disciples. Let's get here. I want to tell you what's going to happen. But first they have a question. So in Acts 1, starting in verse 6, this is what the text says. It says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And after he said this, he was taken up from their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. I would have loved to bend a fly on the tunic of those guys when that happened. They have this picture that they're going to be with Jesus, building this kingdom of God. And then suddenly, he takes the baton of this kingdom-building enterprise, and he hands it to them, and he said, we are going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he floats away and is hidden from their sight by the clouds. What, what would have been like to be there? This curveball has been thrown to you. We've been entrusted with the very redemptive plan of God in the world. This is the most important thing happening on the planet right now. And these men and women are saying, we have been entrusted with this. You know what I know? I understand that they knew the magnitude of what had been given to them. Because if you look at their life and what follows, these are men and women who gave their very life, taking the message of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. They understood what had been given to them, the magnitude and the privilege of that. They had the right perspective on what it was that had been given to them. And now that's why I want us to, to plug into the book of Revelation a little bit now as we, as we kind of springboard into this because I think there's some things that we need to read from there that give us perspective on the magnitude of what it is that God has entrusted to us. And when we look at the book of Revelation, I want us to just look at two scenes from the future. And there's two places in the book of Revelation that we're going to look, and it's two places where God rips open the curtain of the drama and shows us a picture of the future. Two, scene, two scenes from the future that are, are going to happen as certainly as I'm standing here today. These pictures are going to happen. The first one is in Revelation chapter 7, and this is a worship scene of the redeemed people of God. Starting in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. The white robes signifying that they have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, and palm branches signifying victory, victory in this life. All the angels, er, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. This beautiful picture of that redemptive, restorative picture of God bringing people back into relationship with him and worshiping him. Later in the book of Revelation, God once again, though, rips open the curtains of the drama and he allows us to see another scene of the future. But this one, friends, is much, much more sobering. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, meaning eternal death. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, if, if that depiction that we just read there, that scene from the future is not sobering to us, then we don't understand what's saying, what it's saying there. This ultimate picture that people that refuse to bow their knee to God in this life and make him the Lord of their life, he'll allow them to forever be separated from him. Every person that walks on this planet, every person in this room, every person in Bozeman, every one of your friends, every one of your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, every one of us is going to be a part of one of these two pictures. Either we're going to be a piece of the redeemed of God that spend eternity with him, with each other, worshiping him, or we're going to be eternally separated from him. This brings perspective, does it not? When I think about all the things in our life that clamor for our time and our attention, even important things like our marriages and our families, our jobs, our 401ks, our kids' soccer games, our football games, bobcat football games, angry birds. Not that these things are irrelevant and trivial, but can I just say that in perspective, these things are so small. We give ourselves to things that are so small in light of this big picture of what God wants us to be involved in, the redemptive plan of the world. And he wants us to play a role in it. What I know is that Jesus' disciples, they got it. They understood this because of how they lived their lives. They gave their very life, they spilled their blood taking this message to the ends of the earth because they understood eternity is at stake. Life and death is at stake. We've got to have this kind of perspective if we're going to make any kind of a difference in the lives of people around us. But I I just feel like I've got a confession that I need to make is I don't feel like I maintain this perspective very well in my life. In fact, writing this message actually wrecked me for a time this week. I was working on this and reflecting on this and just thinking about, God, what do I give my time to? And I ended up, I was in the library, I ended up having to leave the library on campus and go to the chapel, and I just cried. Because I just thought, God, I give my life to lesser things that are not, they're not trivial, they're not bad, they're not immoral, but in light of the big picture of what, of what you're doing, what, they're unimportant. God, would you help me maintain this kind of perspective that will, that will help me realize that eternity is at stake? And, and I understand and I know that I am not the only person on the planet that struggles maintaining this kind of perspective. For the last 20 years of my life, I've been involved with a ministry, and the, the purpose of our ministry is to create a movement of college students that maintain this perspective and think about how can we give everyone on the campus an opportunity to say yes to a relationship with Christ? How do we build a movement like that? And part of that means that we need to keep this perspective at all times. But, I, but I'll just be honest, in trying to do that, so often that you, you get pushback from people. Oftentimes, people, they, they don't want to take the baton 
that God has handed it. They want to give it to someone else. And sometimes I feel like we even kind of cloak those things in, in churchy ways that, that make us feel all right about it. And I want to, I want to just share with you some things that I, I think we believe that are, that I would call like distortions of the truth. There's elements of truth in it, but there's things that we believe that actually keep us on the bench, things that we say. And these are some of the examples that I want to give today. The first one is oftentimes people will say, well, evangelism is just not my gift. That's just not my gift. And, and I would, I would, go to the wall and say that the Bible is absolutely clear that evangelism is a spiritual gift. There are people that God has actually equipped and wired in such a way that they are very effective and fruitful in their witness for Christ. But this is what I don't think we understand oftentimes about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts do not mean that that is, if, if it's not my spiritual gift, it doesn't mean that I hand the baton to somebody else to do that in the church. The reason that God gifts certain people spiritually is he wants us as a community of people to get around those people and watch what they do, watch how they do it so that we can get better at that as well. A spiritual gift doesn't mean that we hand the baton to someone. If it's not our spiritual gift, all it means is we need to roll up our sleeves harder and get around people that are gifted in that so that we can learn how to do it better. We, we can't pass the buck just because we don't think that it's our spiritual gift. A second thing that people will often say is, it's my life that communicates the gospel, not my words. It's my life that communicates the gospel, not my words. Now there's a, a saying that I've heard so many times throughout my Christian life, and it was actually coined by St. Francis of Assisi, and I just really wish that he hadn't have said this. Um, and this is what he said. He said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, I, I think I understand, and, and I, uh, last night I just said, you, you feel like you're walking on thin ice when you're kind of calling out someone who's a saint because I'm not a saint and he is. But I think that we've distorted what it is that he was trying to say there. I think what is absolutely true is that our lives need to be congruent with the reality of the gospel in us. Our lives ought to reflect who Christ is in us to people. There should be something different about our lives, absolutely. But what is not true is that the gospel can be communicated to people by a good life. We've got to understand that the gospel, in its very essence, it's a message it's a message that people need to understand. And what I know, based on all of my experiences, this message of the gospel is not intuitive to people. Some of the basic elements of the gospel, people are not going to pick up, regardless of how godly your life is. Because one of the, the main points of the gospel is that man, in relation to a holy God, is desperately wicked and in need of a savior. And as I talk with people, that is not intuitive to them. People do not walk around comparing themselves to a holy God and feeling desperately wicked. What we mostly do is we just compare ourselves with other people, right? And certainly on, on one side, we can say that there are people that are more godly than me. But on this side, we can look and just say, obviously, there are some people that are less godly than me. And we, we just kind of assume that somehow God's going to grade on a curve and... 
I'm going to probably be on the right side of the curve. That's what people naturally think. They don't see themselves as desperately wicked before God. And even if people do see themselves in need of a Savior, their gut will not tell them that the thing that they need to do is throw themselves at the mercy of a holy God and ask for his forgiveness. What they think that they need to do is they feel like they need, or naturally we think we need to earn it. I need to get my life together. I need to be more religious. That's oftentimes what people think. And the very essence of the gospel is missed. And they're never gonna pick those things up just by looking at our lives. We've got to communicate the message of the gospel, not just live a godly life. And and I've gotta tell you and, and say it one more time, when I think about the disciples that spilled their blood, all but the gospel of John, all but the writer of, the, of John, I, I guess I'll just say all but John, the author of the book of Revelation, all of the other disciples were martyred for their faith. They spilled their blood. And I don't think that these guys spilled their blood and were killed because they were being really nice people and serving in their community. They were martyred for a message, a message that they felt so passionately about that they said, I would rather die than deny the people of the world the opportunity to hear this and have a relationship with God. A third thing that people often say is, you know, I want to focus more on discipleship in my ministry rather than evangelism. And I think if you, if you look at the, the teaching and the life of Christ, it would, this would be very confusing to Jesus, if you were to say, I want to do discipleship rather than evangelism. Because if you look at his life and ministry, evangelism and discipleship are one in the same. Discipleship, the reason that he called people to him was that he wanted to change them into people that would be world changers in the lives of other people. In fact, when he called his disciples, this is what he said. This, these were his very words, Matthew four nineteen. He said, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my disciples, here's the end game. When you've grown, when you've become who I've asked you to become, this is what's going to be true of your life. You're going to be about rescuing people for the kingdom of God. Evangelism and discipleship are the very same thing. It was Jesus' very first words when he invited people to follow him. And as we read in Acts chapter 1, it's his very last words to them as well. You will be my witnesses. It's, it's, it's what Jesus wants to do in and through our lives. And it's how we're even going to experience him. We ex- I, the ways I've grown the most in my Christian life is being involved in taking the gospel to people and watching God change people's lives. It builds your faith in ways that nothing else does, in my opinion. Evangelism and discipleship are the same. A fourth thing that I hear people say is that people are not interested in hearing the gospel. And I will say that I I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. There are people out there that are not interested in hearing the gospel. But here's the problem. We don't know who those people are until we communicate the gospel to them. And I think what we oftentimes do is we look at the externals in people's lives and we make judgment calls by ourselves on their receptivity to the gospel based on their external behavior. We look at things that are going on in their life and we think, man, they do not look interested in God. 
And I've got to say that in my experience, external behavior almost has no correspondence to where people are at in terms of their desire to want to have a relationship with God. Sometimes people that are living life out on the edge are in a place of the greatest desperation. And I think about my own story. I am so thankful that my friend didn't look at the externals of my life and make a judgment call as to whether I was interested in hearing the gospel or not. Because it would have been so easy for him to say, look at what that guy does on the weekend. He is not interested in the things of God. But what he didn't know was there was also a guy that's just laying awake in his bed at night, staring at the ceiling, thinking there's got to be more to life than this. There's just got to be more than this. We cannot tell from the outside whether or not people are interested. And a second thing that I would want to say related to this is that oftentimes people are much more opposed to Christianity than they are to Jesus. Christianity carries a whole lot of baggage with it that Jesus does not. And there's a difference between Christianity and Jesus, and that you probably understand that. There was a, a time that on our campus that we decided we were going to send a, a, a DVD uh, of, a, of the Jesus film to every student that lived on campus in the dorms. And so we sent those to students. And as a result, there was a, a guy that, that got this and was deeply offended that we had tried to send this video to him. And he figured out who, what organization did it, and he got my name, and he called me at my home. And when he got on the phone, he just railed on me. And, you know, everything in you wants to get really defensive, you know, and I, but I just kept thinking, just listen to him. Just listen to him. And I feel like he just, like, walked through the Middle Ages up to right now, every negative thing associated with Christianity. And I just, I just remember thinking he, he's missed the whole point. And so at one point when he had to take a breath eventually, I just said, you know, the things that you're angry about, I'm, I'm kind of angry about those things too. And I said, and quite honestly, I think Jesus is more angry about those things than all of us put together. I said, but the reason that I wanted to send that video to you is I wanted you to understand his message. I wanted you to see Jesus without all those other things. And he said, well, well what would you say is the message of Jesus? And so we, we had an opportunity to talk about that on the phone. By the end of our phone conversation, he and I were laughing on the phone, even kind of laughing about some of the things that he had said to me earlier. It was a great conversation. I wish I could tell you that he gave his life to Christ over the phone. He did not. Uh, he didn't even want to meet with me because I think he was embarrassed about all the things that he yelled at me on the phone earlier. But when he got off the phone, he said, thank you for sharing that with me. You're a good spokesperson for Jesus, is what he said to me. And I just thought, you know, isn't that, isn't that just the case with so many people? When they think of Christianity and they think of different things associated with that, there can be this wall that goes up. But if you just talk about Jesus, people are oftentimes so much more open. And as we kind of round home and, and head toward the end here, I want, I want to just, if I can, in just a few minutes, try to give you a couple practical things. If, if you want to move out, if you want to start to think about people that are in your sphere of influence and you want to have an influence in their life, I want to give you a couple of, uh, just a couple of tracks to run on. The first thing that a person needs to do is you need to inspect your heart. You need to ask yourself, what's going on in my heart as it relates to this? Do I have God's perspective on this whole witnessing thing? 
Because if you do have God's perspective, there's a couple of things that you're going to see in your life. And one of those things is compassion. You're going to start to care about people much more than you have before. And you're going to see an urgency in your life. When we have God's perspective and we know what the end game is and we know that the stakes are high, there's an urgency that gets developed in us. If you don't have that, pray and ask God to give you his heart for people. I'm constantly doing that, asking God, give me your perspective, give me your heart for people. A second thing that we need to do is begin to invest in people's lives, simply moving toward people relationally. But I also would say that the best way that you can invest in people's lives is begin to pray. Begin to pray that God would break through in their lives and he would take those hearts of stones and he would rip them out and he would replace it with a heart of flesh that could respond to God and have a relationship with him. Because I find it in my life, it's virtually impossible to be indifferent toward people that I'm consistently praying for. I just care and I want to know what's going on and I want to move toward them. Pray for people in your sphere of influence. The third thing means is inquire about where they're at on their spiritual journey. And this means that you've got to open your mouth eventually. It's not just looking at our heart and praying for them. We've got to move toward people. Find out where they're at on their spiritual journey. If someone called you on the phone right now trying to find Journey Church and they were lost, what would be the first question that you would ask them? You'd say, where are you? Because for you to be able to give them directions to find here, you've got to understand where they're at. The same is true in our spiritual lives as well. If we're going to understand how to bring people to the foot of the cross, we've got to understand where they're at in their spiritual life. We need to ask questions. The question that I just ask over and over when I, when I meet someone is just asking them simply, do you have any kind of spiritual background? And just see where that goes. Just let them begin to share and ask follow-up questions to that and just begin to understand where are they coming at? Where are they at on their spiritual journey? A third thing that we can do is invite them to join your community. And when I say community, I'm talking about a group of people that meet together to study God's word and to worship God together. I'm talking about environments like this. There's something incredibly powerful about the gathered worship of God's people and what that says to people that don't know God. I feel like it's almost become cliche in the ministry that I work with, crew. Um, when, when I hear people talk about their spiritual journey of coming to faith as a college student, so often it starts at, well, someone invited me to come to crew, and when I got there, there was just something different about that place. There was something different about the environment. There was something different about the people. And I knew that there was something that people had that I didn't, and it intrigued me. Invite people to come to environments where they can be a part of the corporate worship of God. And the last thing that we need to do is we need to inform people of the message of the gospel. Inform them of the message of the gospel. We've got to be people that know how to make the issue clear. That we need to help people understand what is the essence of the gospel. What is it that God wants from us? What is it that I need? And how do I make Christ's death apply to my life? We've got to become excellent at being able to communicate that, pe that to people in a way that's very clear and personal and relevant to them. Journey's mission statement is this, doing whatever it takes to connect people to God. 
Our mission statement is doing whatever it takes to connect people to God. Folks, this is what I believe it's going to take for us to live out that mission. We've got to be people that understand the magnitude of what God has entrusted to us with the message of the gospel. He's entrusted to us a message that has the very power to change a person's life for eternity. And we need to be people that don't view this entrustment as a burden, something that causes our our shoulders to wilt and to feel guilty, but someone that sees it as an honor and a privilege that God would use broken, dirty vessels like us to proclaim the greatest news ever announced to the world. It's not, it's not something that we need to be burdened by. It's a privilege. What, what would happen if the, you know, I, I see the statistics. There's in roughly about 1,200 adults that come through Journey Church on a weekend. What if every one of those 1,200 people went home today, opened up Facebook, or opened up their cell phone, and just began to look through the list of friends that they have, people that God has brought you, brought them into your circle of influence, and they began to think, how can I move toward that person? Who can I begin to pray for? Who can I begin to invite to church? Who can I begin to even ask questions of and find out where they're at on their spiritual journey? If you just think about the network of relationships that are present of the people that are going to walk through Journey Church on this weekend alone, that represents thousands of people in our valley that could have the opportunity to hear the greatest news ever announced. Let's pray. Father, when I reflect on what it is that you've entrusted to us, I I honestly, God, I do not feel worthy. Lord, I feel flaky. I feel weak. But at the same time, Lord, I feel very, very honored that you could have chosen a thousand different ways to build your kingdom and proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth, but you chose to use us. And God, I I believe that you've done that because there's things that you want to show us about yourself as we take steps of faith and we see you show up. And God, I just pray for me and I pray for my friends here. God, that we would not miss any opportunity that you would want to bring our way, but that we would take those things very, very seriously, God, because we know that eternity is at stake. God, thank you for using us in the big picture of what you're doing in the world. In Christ's name, amen.